We are going to dive into Genesis 14 uh, this morning. Um, the la- since the last time I've been up here, uh, my wife and I uh, had another child, our fourth, a little baby girl. Yeah. Um, where I, I, unfortunately, I wish I could show you some pictures and talk about that, but for sake of time, um, just, to, just to celebrate that with you, which has been really cool. So we'll kind of just dig in. I'm just kidding. Here she is. All right. So that's, uh, that's Lydia Joy uh, Von Stein, born on April 3rd. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you awed April 3rd or her, but that, that's, but she, she, uh, boy, I, you know, I have three boys, and so when we found out we were pregnant with the fourth, I, um, you know, I didn't care if it was a boy or girl. <laughs> no, I was going to be really angry if I had another boy. So, so, no, I'm serious. So, um, I can double down on that. I like her more than all of my other children right now, okay? I mean, it's just, it's, it's seasonal. Um, but, but uh, yeah, I, I knew that having a daughter would, I've always wanted a girl, and I knew that it would be different. To, to have a daughter, um, but I didn't think it would be different yet. Does that make sense? You know, I, like when she gets older, but like the minute she was born, I'm like, oh, it's different. <laughs> Everything's different, you know? And um, my kids like started like walking to her and I like hissed at them, you know? And I was just like, you know, that's my baby. That's my baby girl right there. And I'm in love with her. Uh, you know, as, as uh, many of you have had your own or held a child, know that like, they kind of have a ministry of their own, don't they? You know, when I get to start my day by holding Lydia, which, by the way, um, she's starting to smile, which is really cool. Won't smile for me, though. Yep, I will try very hard to get her to smile, and she hasn't smiled for me yet. My wife will sneeze in another room, and she'll smile. But she hasn't, but it's not, it doesn't bother me. She's, she's like a two-month-old baby. It doesn't make me feel insecure. <sighs> it's fine. You know, when I hold her in the morning um, and, you know, I start my day with her, uh, she, she's such a ministry to me. You know, God uses her in such a really cool way because I hold her and whether or not she's sleeping or she's awake or she's crying, happy, I, you know, I don't care. Like, she, she just fills my heart with gratitude. Gratitude for her, gratitude to the Lord. She just, you know, she changes my day when, when I hold her. And I'm just so thankful for her. And as I uh, prepared uh, this week, um, in, in a different sense, as I tackled uh, Genesis 14, when I first sat to Ben, says like, hey, you're going to do Genesis 14. Um, and I was like, oh, cool, because listen, Scripture, what is Scripture supposed to do for us, right? Is, is God's Word supposed to be a ministry to us? Right, I'm saying like Lydia kind of softens my heart. She changes the way I go about my day, right? She, she fills me with gratitude. And God's word is, is meant to be that, right? And Lydia is a lot of work, for, for mom especially, right? But like she is a lot of work, you know? And sometimes scripture can be a lot of work, amen? And yet God is beckoning us, in, you know, to scripture, calling us, in, in, you know, in to, to meet him here. And as the Holy Spirit just challenges us with, but, but often, if you're like me, and I'm, I'm assuming there's at least one or two, maybe, right? When I sit down with God's word, um, I, I sometimes want it to be spoon-fed to me. I want it to be simple. I want the application to just be right there uh, 
at, and, and that happens sometimes, right? Sometimes, have you ever, you know, you sat down with the Word, you read that one passage, that one verse, and you're like, oh man, that's exactly what I needed, Lord. Thank you for meeting me in this way. And then other times, you open up God's Word, and you're just like, I don't, I, I don't, that was not helpful. I don't, I don't know what to do with that, you know? It's not always easy, is it? And yet, the, the, doing the work, right, doing the work of, of meeting God in Scripture, I think, is so important. I think God wants to, to meet us in, 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 in that process of finding him and not always being spoon-fed to us. And look, it's appropriate for us to come on, I think about food, right? Like, you, 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 this idea of, of learning the taste of the gospel. Like, is it appropriate for us once a week on a Sunday to kind of go to the restaurant where a chef has prepared a special meal for you, Right? Hear it, right? Right? That, you know, man, like the chef that, you know, Ben and Mark and Phil and Jeff, all of that, man, they know what you need. They know you. They love you. They're your shepherds, and they've prepared something beautiful for you. And what, what a privilege, right, to sit and to be able to taste the gospel, something that they've dug in, right? They've done the work, and they've brought it to you, right? And that's great, and that's really appropriate. But the truth is that, that God has sort of invited us into the kitchen with him on a daily basis, Right? He's saying, I'm so thankful that your pastors and your shepherds are doing the work and bringing this thing to you. But God, he's, God's going to you all the time. Like, I want you to come and do the work too. You know, it's, it's okay to borrow uh, a recipe. It's okay to go get good ingredients, right? To have a study Bible, maybe have a commentary or something that helps you dig through God's word. But God is saying, look, I want you to kind of knead the dough with me in the kitchen. Like, do the work. I want you to learn the taste of the gospel, something that you and I kind of cooked up together. Does that make sense? You know, I, my wife sent me this really great article that said this idea of like, man, there are people who want the experience of, of being on the top of the mountain, a summit. And, and that's kind of the way we are with God's word. Man, I just want to experience and, and marvel at the power of God's word. I want that, 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 that mountaintop experience. And so we get in our car and we just drive to the top of the mountain, get out, walk 20 feet, and we're like, whoa, that's incredible. And while we're standing there, somebody covered in sweat, with a backpack on, right, all just comes and stands next to you, and then they just stare out there. And they're seeing the same view, right? And they're marveling at it. And yet, but yet the person's experience to get there was very different, was it not? Man, that's, I think God sometimes just wants us to do the work. And I know that our relationship with God's word, you see why I'm, t- you see when we get into Genesis 14 why I'm saying all this, Okay. I know that all of our relationship with God's word is different. There are some of you here that, like, man, the Holy Spirit has just met you in God's word so much. You just devour it. You love it. You can't get enough of it. It's always with you. If you have a free, you have a free moment, you go to God's word, right? You don't take out Instagram. Like, you love God. And I know that you're here, and I'm so thankful for you, and you encourage me. And there are some of you here, probably a majority of us here, that our, our constant relationship with the Bible is when I feel like I have time, and I kind of always carry around this I should read my Bible more thing right, with me, right, and, and, and all of that. And so, you know, in our relationship with this, ah, there's a lot of this where I feel, you know, do you ever feel unqualified when you read Scripture? Like, or, or you just feel a lack of confidence, you know, or you're just lazy, right? And, and we don't want to do the work. And then I also recognize that there might be at least one person here that outside of your, maybe your attendance here, which I'm so thankful for, and I'm so thankful for how you sit under the authority and the shepherding as God's word is brought to you, but there are some of you here that, that never read this, that never touch this. 
And I think that sometimes that's not because, like, you, you, you know, you haven't grown up and you don't have this, you know, enough spiritual litmus or, 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 or maturity. To, it, it's just that I think sometimes we're so intimidated by this. We just don't realize the life that is here for us. So I want you to know I'm glad for, for wherever we are in our relationship with God's Word. Because when I, I got to Genesis 14... And, and I said, okay, I'll go to my, I have like a journal Bible. If you don't have one, you should get one. It's, it's just a Bible with all these edges and spaces for you to write. And so I go, went to my journal Bible and I was like, all right, Genesis 14. Let me see what I've written in the past about Genesis 14, right? I've been reading my Bible for a while. There's probably a lot of notes there. Genesis 10, tons of notes. Genesis 11, you know where I'm going with this. Lots of notes. 12, tons of notes. 13, I can't read anything because there's so many notes. And then on 14, it's a pristine, never touched, never read yeah, I, every time I'm in Genesis, I just nope myself right out of Genesis 14. I'm like, I'm out of here. I don't understand what's happening here, I, and we'll just move on. Genesis 15, covered in notes. So I was like, dang it. Okay? All right? So listen, here's what I want to do this morning. This morning, I, I want to invite you to do the work with me to understand this chapter. Will you do that with me? Look, that means, what that means is that I'm going to recognize that you and me are not the main characters of chapter 14, okay? But let's do the work together. Let's get a little bored this morning, okay? Like, turn off your phone for a second, right? And like, let's, like, let's drill into this because I know, I know that when we do that, man, the Holy Spirit will meet us and we will see the beauty of God. In it, even in some of these difficult passages and difficult pages, which I know that are, you know, Ben and Mark, all of them, you know, have experiences. We go through Genesis, right? Like it's just a, it's a tougher book of the Bible sometimes. And so let's read together, let's pray, and dive into Genesis 14. But let's do the work um, and and understand it uh, this morning. God, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit in it and through it. God, I pray that as we unpack an ancient document where we are not the main character, Lord, that, that, that we would just learn more about you, more about uh, your love for your people, for us, and just where we fit in to all of this. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to read um, good luck. I'm going to read. You're not going to read. You're just going to listen. All right. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Cheridlamor, or you could say Cheridlamor, uh, either one, I'll interchange it, king of Elam and the title king of Goim, these kings made war with Barak, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Admah, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all of these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kiladamor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Kiladamor and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphim and the Arioth. Carneum and the Zuzim and Ham and the Enum and the Shavah Kirarithium. Oh, let's keep going. And the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to the end Misfat, that is the Kadesh, and defeated all of the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hazan Tamar. Then, 
The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kiramor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of butamen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country, so that the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram and the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and the Anur. Those, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in the house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants uh, and he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Haba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all of the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsmen, lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. Yes. So, have you ever been at a restaurant and you've been looking at the menu for 15 minutes, and the waiter or waitress comes and is like, Do you know what you want? And you're like, I don't know what I've been doing. <laughs> I think I've been reading this the whole time, but I, I have no idea any of the food you offer here at this restaurant. Um, so we just, we just read, oh yeah, thanks Ben. <laughs> that's, that's just a personal note between me and Ben for giving me Genesis 14. <laughs> I, sh I should have, I'm sorry. Thanks Ben. <laughs> um, but you should, I, I love having this clicker. Um, so we just read all of that, and I, I, I mean, guys, we don't have to pretend. Like, I understand that what I just read was English, okay? There are consonants and vowels put together in a certain way that, that appears to be English. Um, but when I read that, I mean, no wonder that I, I didn't take a ton of notes. I just, I was like, ah, that's, I don't understand a thing I just read, you know? You ready to do the work? All right, let's do the work. So, we're going to do the work, and uh, guys, up until this point, we have been following through these chapters of Genesis, uh, connected with Abraham and his journey of faith, right? His response to promises, his response to obstacles, and then Genesis 14, all of a sudden, starts to break up that story. And by the way, for the first time, we, we, sort, we have warfare in Genesis. And Abram, by the way, I mean, we, we, Abram's not done anything like this in, uh, in so far in his story, and he won't do it again, Right? All of a sudden, it's like, hey, Abram takes 318 of his men, and he goes to war. And it's like, well, that is very different than, than the Abram that we've seen up until this point. But let's use pictures, okay? If you can't read some of the words on there, that's fine, okay? But on the left, what you have is that there's this. There, there's a bunch of men that serve that guy, okay? They're serving him for 12 years. And in the 13th year, it says that they rebel. You see how they all have their swords up now? They're angry. Okay? So they rebel against Cherlemore. All right? And that king's response against that rebellion, right, is to take some of his allies. And do, now, now, he probably, he likely doesn't take all of his men or his entire army with him. And by the way, when you say king of this and king of Goim and king of whatever, we are not meant to think that 
uh, like George III, a Queen Elizabeth II, right? Like in, in, in the ancient Near East, right, you would think of these kings of like a small town mayor, okay? Right, because a lot of these towns were probably 5,000 people or less, right? And so these, so Chalodomor and his allies against this rebellion go on like a raiding party, right? And they hit town after town after town, right? And, and, and as they do that, what do they do? They gather up cattle. They gather up men. And well, they kill as many men as possible. And they, and they take women and children and money and plunder and all of those things. And they just keep raiding south and south and south and south until they reach the area where Abram lives, okay? More pictures. So now, now they reach the valley of Sidim. Now, so this Chalodomor and his allies go to war against the king of Sodom and his allies. So you have four kings against five. Five is king Sodom and his allies, and four is Chalodomor and his allies. And so they go to war. And what happens to the king of Sodom and his allies is that they lose, okay? They lose very badly. They are defeated, okay? And Lot gets wrapped up in that defeat. Are you with me? Right? So Lot, Abram's uh, relative, gets, gets caught up in that, and he's captured. And, and, the, and these men are, keep getting pushed and pushed and pushed, and there are tar pits, okay? Uh, this butamen pits where more and more of these men are dying. And I read in a commentary that, it's, that geographically there are. This is historically accurate. I didn't have time to go and verify, but I'm going to trust it. So, like, that there are these tar pits there and that these people died, right? Okay, but what happens? One of them escapes, okay? He escapes. He escapes, and he runs to Abram, all right? And Abram's response is to take his allies, right, his, his, some of his allies and 318 of his own men. So he has his allies there where, where in, near Mamre where he is living, okay? And his allies probably have some men. And Abram takes 318 of his men. Now, mind you, don't think like Roman centurions, okay? Abram's men weren't like a bunch of like incredibly well-trained military specialists, okay? They could probably hold and swing a sword, okay? And so he takes 318 of, his, of, of, of the men of a part of his household and part of, you know, his, his community there, and they go, what are they doing? They're going to go rescue his relative Lot. And again, we've not seen Abram do this before, right? There's a bravery to Abram that we're seeing for the, for the first time. We've seen a lot of things. We've seen deceit and faith and tra- all, all of these things, you know, in, in the journey and life of Abram. But now he's, he's this warrior, right? And it's incredible when he's going to war. But we know that he's going against a vastly superior force. Think about all that they've been doing. Chilodomor and his allies have, have been defeating every single uh, uh, military or town, anything that they've encountered, they've won. And so we're not told Abram's strategy here too much, but when they get to uh, Dan uh, at night, right, what does he do? He splits all of his forces and they attack at night against these allies. And, what it, well, they, they, and they rout them. They, they, they begin to see victory. And so what does Abram do? Well, when, when, as they're winning, Abram starts to gather up some of that cattle, gather up some of those women and children and some of the money, and then they keep pushing them, and they keep raiding and going after them at night, and, and keeps pushing them further north and further north, and all the way up until the point where they get to Haban, Horba, Hoba, okay? And so they just keep, and then there they stop, and they have gathered, and they've got it all back, right? And they've got Lot back too. And that's where we stopped reading. Now, 
That, that makes a lot more sense than when I was done reading it, yes? Okay, so we just did the work, and it's good to do the work, all right? And so um, let's keep going, and let's, let's just see what happens next. I have to get through all my notes. Here we go. After his return from the defeat of Terlamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say that I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what these young men, what these young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. And that's Genesis 14. And so here in this second part, we now, we're, we're caught up, right? Raiding parties south, lots of losing, okay? Lot gets wrapped up, Abram responds, goes out, goes to war with raiding parties, wins, pushes Chalot Amor and those allies, al his allies back up north, and he gets Lot and he gets all of this. And now we have a conversation between, uh, and I highlighted there, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, king of Salem. And so more pictures. Here they are. Okay, these two guys, this is the two conversations that we're going to go over. And so let's first talk about um, the king of Sodom, who has a very luscious beard like Ben. Okay, but that, that's the only similarity. That's it. I, I just want to make that clear. It's just an illustration, okay. Um, but, but so he's having this conversation uh, with the king of Sodom. And listen, we can see by Abram's response, right, um, that Abram wants nothing to do with the king of Sodom. Yes? Okay, he wants nothing to do with him. Now, the king of Sodom says, give me the people back and you keep everything else. The king of Sodom wasn't being uh, nice, okay? That's customary, all right? In, 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 in their time, uh, in the victory, in the sort of mercenary warfare, right, it would have been customary for Abram to give the people back Right? To say, here's all the, the women and the children and any other one else that got wrapped up in this. Here you go. And I keep all the spoils, the booty, the plunder, whatever it is. I, I keep it. Okay? And what is Abram's response? I don't want it. Right? He goes, look, I, I, of course, we'll keep what our men have already eaten. I'll let my allies, the ones who did this with me, right? Remember those brothers and, and Mamre and all of them and Nur and all of that? He's like, look, they can, they can have their spoils. But listen, I, I'm not taking a thing from you. Lest, lest you say that you made Abram rich, right? Because when Abram set out to do this, was he thinking like, I'm going to go get a lot of plunder and I'm going to get rich off of this? I mean, Abram was already a, a, an incredibly blessed man. He took 300, he had 318 men just to take on, on this part, this raiding party with him, right? So we know that it's not about riches. We know that. And Abram doesn't want his intentions. He says, I've lifted my hand to the God. He's look, I have a covenant with the Lord. He's like, I, I, I don't want the glory of this. Right? He, so I don't, want this, I don't want these riches. I don't want that. And Sodom represents, in, in so many ways, the wickedness of the day. 
And Abram does not want to associate with it in any way, shape, or form. And so that's his conversation with the king of Sodom. And then there's Melchizedek, who comes onto the scene, and it, 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 he, is a, he is this very obscure character. Now, And let me get with me here. You have to understand why. Abram's the guy. Do you understand? When it, when it comes to the, the Jewish people, the, you know, the Israeli nation, right, God's people, Abram is the guy. He's the chosen guy, top of the totem pole. He is the intercessor between God and his people and God's covenant, right? And we'll continue to see that fleshed out through Genesis 14. So the way that Abram treats Melchizedek is weird, all right? Like, listen, Abram, with any of these kings, king of Goim, king of this, Abram would not have shown deference or submission to any of them. No way. But Melchizedek shows up. And what does he do? He brings out bread and he brings out wine. Now, what we want to do, instead of doing the hard work, is go like, oh, like communion? And it's like, well, there was no communion practice back then. So it's unlikely that they were, he, the, the author is trying to make that link. That link can be there and that's kind of cool, right? It's like, let's say it's neat, okay? But it's really common for them to eat bread and drink this very sort of watered-down wine-water combination. The men were tired. You know, it's like, he brought out bread and wine, and we're like, yeah, I wonder why, though. Like, what is that? It's like, so they could eat. Yeah, but like, what do you think the point is? So they could eat, you know, and, and be refreshed, okay? And so he, he's obviously, he's this incredibly kind, compassionate king, priest king that we'll find out here. He brings out bread and wine, he feeds them, okay? And, and um, then Melchizedek offers a blessing over Abram. We read that, didn't we? He said, and, and we learned that Melchizedek, this is awesome. Remember, he's like, this guy is sort of separate from Abram and his people, and yet he worships the same God that Abram does. So you should be asking, who the heck is Melchizedek? Like, you know, like, where did he come from? And in, in these times, the, the, the blessed giver, the one giving the blessing is superior to the one receiving the blessing. So by receiving the blessing... Abram is, is, again, showing deference and submission to Melchizedek. But then it goes further, right? Because Melchizedek says, look, Abram, God handed your enemies into your hand, which I love. Melchizedek is reminding Abram to give glory to God, right? Like, hey, you know, you, you can, we can show pride in victory even when we're doing God's things, right? And so Melchizedek goes like, no, 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 all the glory goes to God, creator of heaven and earth and what does Melchizedek do? He tithes 10% of what he has to Melchizedek. Now, we'll see later in the Bible that God's people would tithe to the priests, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about priests, but they would come to the priests and they would tithe 10% of what they had because these priests would act as an intercessor between God's people and God himself. It's an act of submission. The priests are, are, are superior to the people. And so by giving a tithe to Melchizedek, again, Abram is showing the superiority to Melchizedek, that Melchizedek is superior by giving him a tithe. Does that make sense? Boy, we're doing the work, aren't we? And then Genesis 14 just ends. And then Melchizedek is gone. We know nothing about him. We don't know where he came from. Oh, his name means king of righteousness. Okay? And he is what? The king of Salem. Salem 
uh, translated is the word shalom, which can simply mean in Hebrew high, but of course it has like a deeper meaning, right? Shalom, and when you think about the, when God created heaven and earth, right, was that before uh, en- the entrance of deceit and sin, the, the, that shalom means like the fullness of well-being and richness between God and his people. There's shalom, right? So when, 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 when Jewish people would greet each other with shalom, right, they weren't just saying, hey, right? They're saying, may you have the fullness and the richness of, 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 of well-being and connection and shalom with God. And so Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, is the king of a place called Salem, which some commentary people, and they speak commentary people. That's like, that's like their title on a business card. I'm a commentary people. So different commentaries, those who wrote them, right? They don't all agree, but all of them say it's possible that Melchizedek was the king of a place that would soon be called Jerusalem. Because there, there may have been other places called Salem, but I think just like the bread and wine, you can go neat. Like that's cool. I, don't want, I wonder if that's true. And so Genesis 14. Mel, Melchizedek is gone. And listen, at this point, I don't think Melchizedek would, would, would matter at all, right? Because there are tons of obscure people in the Old Testament. The difference is that none of them, uh, uh, all, all of those other obscure people in the Old Testament did us the favor of not being important because they were never mentioned ever again, right? So we don't have to care about it. We just move on. However, in two other places in the Bible, in Psalm 110, and then in Hebrews chapters 5 through 8, Melchizedek pops back up. And so let's keep doing the work. All right? This is Psalm 110. This is a thousand years later. King David pens this song, this poem. And this Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament. It's very fascinating. Jesus would reference this, and all throughout uh, uh, the the New Testament we'll see this by Paul and other um, authors. Let's read it together. And by the way, as I read it, I think that this is just as ambiguous as the Genesis 14 reference. You'll see. The Lord says to my Lord. That's weird. Listen, look at that sentence. The Lord says to my Lord. What is that? What is that? Okay. "Sit Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. A thousand years later, and David brings him up almost just as oddly. He just kind of comes and goes out of Scripture at this point, and, and, and you don't really understand why. And listen, most of the things that David would pen in the Psalms that we read and are such a blessing to us in our faith, right, David was at war, so he wrote about war. David was being hunted by his enemies, so he wrote about being hunted by his enemies. David was feeling repentance and sorrow and guilt, and so he wrote about that, right? There's a connection between what David's experiencing, right, and what he writes. And then all of a sudden, he says, my Lord says to my Lord, and he begins to, to, to paint this picture, David himself, of saying, one day, listen, there's going to be a Lord 
right, that God is speaking to. There is going to be a Lord that God is speaking to, and he will be of the order of Melchizedek. Now, at the time, before David, God had done something with the Jewish people, and he had brought up the royal priesthood. They were called the Levites from, from Aaron, right? These priests that would be these intercessors. And so what's interesting here is he's saying, as, as David looks forward to this other Lord that will sit at the right hand of God, that will give the enemies, uh, you know, that will, will, will smote his enemies, right, and defeat them and all of that, he doesn't say that, that this descendant that's coming will be a descendant of those Levitical priests, right? So David is fully ensconced in the law at this time, and he's already kind of saying that like whoever this guy comes is going to outstrip the law, meaning the current law is already insufficient. Whoever comes, this new priest king, whoever's around the corner, he won't, his, his authority won't come from Levite, from being a Levitical priest. He will be of the order of Melchizedek, okay? All right. And then in Hebrews, chapters 5 through 8, and we are not going to read it, but I'm going to give you some highlights. Another thousand years passes, and we don't ever hear about Melchizedek ever again. Ever again. Well, for those thousand years, we don't hear about Melchizedek ever again. And then in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, and we're not exactly sure who the author of Hebrews is. Some people think it was Paul, but we're not sure. You really can't confirm it. But whoever the author is writes about Melchizedek, again, look in uh, chapter 6. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's that name again. And so look, the book of Hebrews, look at me real quick. The book of Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience, okay? Not you, Okay? So here's what that means. Like, you understand that, that, that the, the author of Hebrews is trying to use the Old Testament that his audience was very familiar with, right? So, so the, he uses, right, um, it is precisely sort of the mystery of these two Old Testament passages back in Genesis 14 and then in Psalm 110. The author uses that ambiguity and that mystery in order to make an important point regarding Jesus Christ. And he uses that Melchizedek reference. And he's, the, the book of Hebrews is trying to clarify for its readers who Jesus is. Trying to set him apart, holy, different, uh, um, the, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king. And Hebrews especially, the ultimate what? The ultimate priest, right? And, 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 and look, there were plenty of priests in Jewish history right? So the, the author is making this incredible hard work of saying, look, you got to pay attention that Jesus is different. He is an ultimate priest of a whole different order. He's not of air. His lineage doesn't come from, um, from a, a human lineage. His authority doesn't come from a human lineage, right? So what we'll see is that they'll say, look, Melchizedek was without mother, without father, without beginning, without end. And the author of Hebrews says the same thing about Jesus, without mother, without father, without, be, without beginning and without end. Now, when you hear that in our 21st century brains, we just go like, well, excuse me, um, uh, he did actually have a mom and a dad, right? But the author knows that, right? But do you see the linky that he's trying to make? He's saying, look, Melchizedek comes onto the scene and he has all of this authority and you have no idea where it came from, right? 
It was just simply no beginning, no end, no mother, no father. He just has this authority. And he goes, Jesus Christ is like that. He doesn't get his authority from his, his bloodline. He doesn't get his authority from his lineage, though he is a descendant of a bloodline that something God had done. But that's not what makes him the ultimate priest. He's not just a, a priest in the line of Aaron. His priesthood is on a completely different order, right? He is not just fulfilling the law. He is completely outstripping it and changing it. The kingdom of God is going to be different, and God's authority, Christ's authority is different, like the order of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews says that, look, Jesus is like those other priests and that he's human, which means he understands you. He's been through temptations. He's been through pain. He's been, been through hurt. But the book of Hebrews continues to say, but Jesus is different because those priests, they had to make sacrifices for the people, but they also had to make sacrifices for their own sin. And Jesus is different. Why? Because he has been tempted in every single way and he has never sinned. He is a perfect priest. Amen? Now, at this point, okay, I've been talking for however long, all right? I have a little bit of a headache right now. You should too, okay? But listen, we're doing the work. And listen, Paul knew that this was tough. Look what he says in f chapter 5. He goes, look, we have so much to say about this, but this is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. He's throwing shade at you right now. He actually wasn't throwing shade at you. He's throwing shade at his audience. But listen, in fact, though, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Look, he's saying, this is a tough teaching. Don't act like babies who need milk. It's like, be adults. Grow up. Choose some solid food here. Okay? And so I love that that's there because, like, that's kind of my experience with this. I'm like, I want this to be over. You know? And Paul's like, stop being a baby. You know? And I'm like, fine. You know? <laughs> so, so Paul, like, he knew that about his, his audience too. Right? This ultimate priest and Jesus Christ. And then at the end, in chapter 8, don't you love it when Scripture does this? Here's a hint. Here, here's a freebie, right? When a Scripture starts with, now the main point of what I'm saying is, you should highlight that part, okay? That's helpful, all right? We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Hebrews is saying, that Jesus Christ is the perfect priest, the ultimate priest, because he, he does not have to offer sacrifice uh, for his own sins. In fact, he can offer sacrifice for the sins of everyone because he is perfect, and his authority doesn't come from blood, it comes from God. And because he has been sinless, right, he actually does something that no other priest has done before. He can offer up his life, and it actually makes a difference for the lives of of his children. And so he offers up his life and he goes to the cross and through the grave, right? He is meant to restore something. Restore what? Stick with me here now because I'm, look, uh, here's the point and here's now where me and you show up. So now you should get excited, okay? We're all selfish. Here we are. Here's where you and me show up. When God made Adam and Eve, they were his royal priesthood. Perfect what? Shalom, right? His royal priests who made perfect intercession between God and his creation. But they were deceived, were they not? And they were cast out. And yet they were promised that one day there would be a descendant who would come and that he would, he would restore the shalom. He would restore that royal priesthood back to his people. And was it Abraham? 
No. Was it Moses? No. Was it this Levitical priesthood that God put in place for his people? No. Was it David? No. And yet all of these people are not unimportant. Why? Because they all, they all point forward. They all face forward to something that when Jesus would show up, the ultimate priest, and through his death and resurrection, that we have been restored. His righteousness on me. I have been washed white. What? Now just so that I don't have to worry about anything anymore. No. What, is, what Jesus did on the cross and through the grave is that he restored me and you and God's people, not just Jew, the Gentile, everyone, to that original calling that we had through Adam and Eve. And that's why Jesus was the new Adam, and through him we would be his what? His royal priesthood. It would all be restored. And all of a sudden, the shalom through God's kingdom would be restored. Right? Because we had Jesus Christ in the order of Melchizedek who died for us and was risen again. And through him, we have been restored to our calling. And so, so many of us think, well, what does God want me to be? What does he want me to do? Where does he want me to go? And I know that God cares about those things and hopefully he will guide you and give you. But listen, the, the beauty of scripture that he tells you your primary calling. You are a royal priest. That's who you are. And you're not just a royal priest. As the Holy Spirit is, is in you, right? He's in your heart and he's in your life right? The Bible says that we have become living stones. So we're not just royal priests. We have become the temple, right? And so as living stones, as a body of believers, we become the temple. So what does that mean? That it's no longer just like vocational priests in a sense. It's carpenters, tax collectors, mothers, fathers. It's everyone that as, as, as a body, because of Christ's presence in us through the Holy Spirit, that when the world is around us, they are, they are now have access to the very near presence of God. Now, isn't that awesome? Isn't it worth the work to get there? Oh, gosh, I just think it's beautiful. Now, look, with that in mind, you can go back to Genesis 14 with that lens that, man, like this is all about Jesus Christ. This is all about God's redemptive plan. This is all about him. Now, with, with melted hearts for the gospel, realizing what God has done for us, has restored us as royal priests, you can go back to Genesis 14 and see all sorts of incredible pictures, right? But not just pictures that make me feel better for a day, right? Or, but, but just pictures that just make me marvel at him. You know, just the work that we did. Isn't it okay just to get to that summit, right? Our quads are made of jelly now because we've done the climb, right? And we reach the summit and you go, oh my God, Lord, you've just restored your royal priesthood. That's what you've done and it's incredible. And we can marvel at that. But you can look at Genesis 14 and go, gosh, you know, I kind of see Jesus and Abram a little bit. You know, Abram left the comfort of his blessing, right? And he went after what? To go rescue his relative. Jesus left the comfort that he had for eternity with God and came down to rescue us. Man, isn't that cool? You could put yourself in Abram's place. Man, I put on God's armor and I've got God's weapons and I've got a shield of faith and I go to battle for my brothers and sisters in Christ, but more importantly and more common for us as believers, we go against sin in our life and we battle with God's weapons and God's faith and all of those and it's really cool. We can put ourselves in lot shoes and we probably should, a lot. That'd be like a Mark Fair joke right there, okay? So... Right? We, like, we, we need to do that. Right? What does it look like when we place ourselves so near the sin of the world? Look at the, we just get wrapped up in its evil. And we're captured and lost. You see, you can do all sorts of beautiful things, but man, we did the work. We did the work to find Jesus. 
You know, we didn't start out by just thinking like, man, Genesis 14 is about me, and I'm going to figure out where I am in this, right? It's not about you. It's about Jesus. But man, we're a part of that story in an incredibly powerful way. You know, I think about, at the end of the day, guys, this is my challenge for you. You know, I think about Zacchaeus who climbed a tree so that he could see Jesus, right? He did the work. There was a risk involved. It was going to take some time, right? There was plenty of other things he could be doing. He didn't want to see Jesus just through the crowd, right? It didn't want it to be hearsay anymore. He wanted to see him himself, so he did the work. He climbed so that he could see Jesus. And what we find that when we dig into God's word like this, is that we think we're doing the work to find him. And just like Zacchaeus, we find out that Jesus planned this encounter the entire time, right? That Jesus is pursuing us through his word. We just have to do a little bit of the work to climb, to get there, and then marvel at it and discover what Zacchaeus discovered, that, man, when I do the work and I discover that, man, Jesus has been pursuing me this whole time, his whole life has changed. And what happens to Zacchaeus is that Zacchaeus is restored as a royal priest for Jesus Christ, and it impacts everyone he's ever known. He does the work. You see, the author of Hebrews is looking at his audience, and he's doing everything he can. He's looking at them eye to eye, and he's doing everything he can so that they can see Jesus. Man, and that's our role as the royal priests to our children, to our spouses, and to the world to help them see Jesus. You know, I, I thought about this idea of, of, of a royal priest and to try to, I mean, how can this even impact us? In the, just this, you know, even before we apply ourselves to it at time, but just this idea of the royal priesthood, right? The, the living stones. And I, and I thought about just the, the absolute horror of what we've seen in the news this week with what happened in Texas. And, and like many of you, all I know I can do is pray, right? And what do we pray? I know every single one of you prayed something similar. God, bring them peace, right? God, bring them comfort. It's unfathomable pain. God, only you can, can bring them comfort in this. And yet after I read Genesis 14, do you know what I prayed a little bit differently this week? Lord, would you deploy your royal priesthood around these moms and dads and families? Right? Like, would your, would your sons and daughters, the, the very near presence of Christ, find them in the midst of reporters, in the midst of, of just the chaos that's going on, Lord? Would you just send your, your Navy SEAL team of just everyday people, mothers and fathers and carpenters and tax collectors, whomever they are, Lord, would you just surround these people with, with your royal priesthood, God, because you've restored them. And God, these people need them so that they can feel your presence and know your comfort. The royal priesthood, man, that's our calling. Here are some of my challenges for you this week. Number one, this is the most cliche said thing behind a pulpit. And you know exactly what I'm going to say. It's about this. Would you read it? Some of you need to be challenged. Make time to read this. It's not about a checkbox. It doesn't make you better. It doesn't make God like you more. Not reading it doesn't make him, make, make him like, like you less. But he wants to meet you here. Would you do the work? Pick it up. Get in the kitchen with God, right? Learn the taste of the gospel. 
It's okay to come here on Sunday and to sit under the blessing and the shepherding, but don't outsource even your own understanding of Scripture. Do the work. Meet God in the Scripture because the more and more, and listen, there is no change in your life this week that is too costly for you to create space for you and God to meet here. Man, I think the more and more on our own, right, and there's nothing wrong. Guys, I brought this stuff. There's nothing wrong with buying a study Bible. You can buy it on Amazon with all the other crap that you buy, okay? <laughs> buy, buy a study Bible. Buy a commentary. It's okay to borrow good recipes, good ingredients that can help us understand really difficult things. Because I promise you the result is that you will marvel at God's beauty, and man, that will have an incredible impact on your life. Would you create time to read God's word? Because as you do, he will open your eyes more and more, not just to find Christ in here, right? But the more you can find Christ in here, I believe, the more you will see him around you, the more you'll feel him and experience him in you. Some of you need to be challenged this week. Man, just create time to read God's word. Do the work. Sit down with it. Marvel at it. It's okay if you don't, you don't have time to sit down for an hour and a half. Do it for 10 minutes a pop. If that's where you got to start, start there. Secondly, this week, I hope that you'll encourage, listen, I'm talking about doing the work to draw out Christ. Are you with me? So my other challenge to you is this. I hope that this week you would do the work to sort of draw Jesus out of those around you. I mean, what would it look like for you to say, Phil, man, the way I saw you handle that this week, I just saw Jesus in and through you. Man, isn't God awesome that he did that? Man, Ben, the way you just handled this recently, man, I just see Jesus in you. John, the way I saw you treat your wife in that difficult situation, John, that was awesome. I just see Jesus all over you in that. Do the work. Draw them out. And you know why I say do the work? Because that is a really uncomfortable thing to kind of like initiate, isn't it? But just do it. My third challenge is to you husbands, mothers, wives, fathers, brothers, those who you, your, your brothers in Christ. I'm, I'm telling you something. Would you talk about Jesus more this week to draw them out more? I, here's why I say that to you. It looks like it's easy for me to talk about Jesus up here, right? And yet when I go home, I feel this incredible reluctance to talk about Christ with my wife and with my kids. And I don't know where it comes from. So why is it so hard sometimes to do this? So I just want to challenge you to do the work. Draw out Christ. Sometimes we just don't, we're so used to being Christians shoulder to shoulder that we stop doing it face to face. So just do the work. Draw, be royal priests. Draw Jesus out of one another. I just want you to know I'm praying for you this week. I want you to know I saw Jesus in you in that way. Hey, what does your relationship with Jesus look like this week? How can I help you? How can I come alongside of you? I think those moments are a little awkward. They're a little challenging, especially if you've been married for 10, 15, 20 years. You just don't have a huge pattern of doing that. It can just feel so hard. But do the work. Draw Jesus out of one another. And last but not least, as royal priests, I hope that you will take seriously your call to be the royal priesthood. 
invite that neighbor over for dinner, to love on that coworker, to know that your interaction with these people around you, with the marketplace, with those who do not know him yet, that you are the closest thing to the very near presence of God that they will experience. Through your words and through your actions, be the royal priesthood wherever you are. Make God look beautiful in the, in, in the way you do success, in the way you handle your failures, in the job that you hate, in your family, and whatever it is, be the royal priesthood. Make God look beautiful. Draw people in to your lives and show up in theirs. What an incredible honor to be God's royal priest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we do not want to make the reading of the Old Testament a merely cerebral exercise. But we do want to understand what your word says so that we may draw near in confidence to Jesus Christ. Our beloved king, our priest, made for us everything we need and we can find confidence in him. God, we thank you for a vision of one day a renewed and united heaven and earth as God's people serving as his royal priesthood in perfect shalom for all of eternity. Until then, Lord, guide us, teach us, open our eyes that we may see, and in seeing, believe, and in believing, obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.